Greetings, fellow travelers, and welcome to The Way of the Showman, where we view the world through the lens of showmanship. I am Captain Frodo, and as always, I will be your host and gracious guide along the way. And by now, we are well and truly into the third season, which is the season of conversations. We've had, this will be the 10th conversation, I believe, um, interrupted by the my uh, personal yearly um, birthday celebration where I share my shared um, birthday with the pandemic uh, some thoughts but um, today we are launching into a two-part conversation um, with Tom Grader a very interesting and very knowledgeable um, and uh, accomplished performer director and creator of uh, really distinct and extremely innovative uh, performances uh, like his uh, shows um, he's got a show called Panorama Kino Theatre where he it's hard to sort of exactly say but it's like you the audience of the show sits inside a box that can actually pivot around and they look out as if from a cinema screen on the outside he is directing the audience which is made up of um, as in passers by and um and he creates a show for the people inside using audience members uh, random passers-by uh, from the outside um, I have not had the pleasure of seeing this but uh, it, uh, from all that I've seen and all the reports that I've heard it is an amazing experience when I first met him in Australia he was performing together with uh, Trent Arkley Smith in the clown duo uh, Oscar and Strudel and they still perform to this day and uh, they are just I remember seeing it and being completely blown away musical and yeah great clowning anyway um don't want to go through too much of uh, of his um biography and all of his interesting shows but I've already become very interested in uh, talking to him uh, perhaps with helping me with some of my um, my uh, future ideas so uh, yeah without much further ado I'd like to pass over just to the conversation but I just want to sort of point out this that I I don't know if I've sort of spoken it out loud so much on the podcast before but that I this isn't really a the kind of podcast where we are talking biographically about what people do so um if you ever you know you hear the people on my podcast we don't go through their list of accomplishments at least not on in a on a sort of generally that's not what we do we just dive straight in and start talking about ideas i believe ideas are kind of like spaces it's like a place that you can visit and uh, each idea can be visited again and again with different people and you see slightly different things. So with that uh, said, let's uh, jump into the world of ideas with Tom Grader. Quickly I realized um, that us soft pink whiteies that grew up in Switzerland and Australia have absolutely no tolerance for stressful situations and when the shit hits the fan. We are hopeless. All the immigrants here, all the asylum seekers are going, hey, there's avocados in the shop. Where's the problem? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, but it, it's, um, as, a, 
I guess it's the um, thinking a little bit of the princess of the pea. It might might be like first world problems. Uh, so they are they are m- much more <laughs> equipped to do it, but it's still real for the princesses. <laughs> We're like, oh no, but it's it's like this chance there mightn't be no toilet paper and <laughs> it blows us away. Yeah, I know. Look, I mean, I think it's like when when I go on tour, you work, you work, you work, then you have a break, and that's when you get sick because that's when you're sort of able to get sick. And I, yeah. you know, everyone pushed. Well, a lot of people pushed through the the pandemic stuff and. So only afterwards. I mean, it hit me pretty hard just afterwards. Oh the, yeah. The wall started coming in afterwards, not during it. You know. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a yeah. You sort of you gear up, you know, you you toughen up for it, and then not that everyone, of course, made it through without. I mean, it was a really hard, challenging time for a lot of people. Yeah. Um. But me, it hit, it hit afterwards. I, I just had to get to Australia. I got to Australia for, and just decompressed and, and, and gathered my thoughts. And I'm really glad I was able to make it away. So everything's good now again. Yeah, it's um, it was it was a tricky time for everybody. You really because and I mean it was for everybody, but for us, same as like people who d- deal with hospitality or whatever. But anyone who deals with groups of people and we all got hit so hard it was like a trial designed specifically for us and also because of the just the general kind of feeling that people have with art that it's the first thing that can go and that it doesn't necessarily matter it also meant that it took a while for things to come back online again for us because people kind of went oh it's just the performers or whatever and me realizing that although I feel like I am such a versatile uh, performer, I do family shows and I do kids shows uh, and I do adult shows and I do. But the thing which makes me who I am and it really drove home the kind of philosophy or the kind of structural aspects of uh, the way of the showman that I've been talking about this last season of the showman and the audience as being actually one unit. It's. I am not fully myself without them being there. And really, that was driven home in that year and a half when there was practically not a single show. And I realized that all my skills, like it just became, it became not abstract anymore because I'd had this idea that the showman and the audience is kind of one unit and the show is a third thing that sort of emerges between us. But when the audience was taken away, I was left there without the picture on the puzzle pieces all the puzzle pieces that uh, that i have that is part of what i love part of what i'm interested in and part of what makes meaning in my life all just were now little islands not connected anymore and it was all kind of strange and uh, and and so that really sort of drove it home for me how symbiotic that uh, relationship actually is and how needy in a way (laughs) yeah it's interesting. Yeah, that just triggers a couple of thoughts for me. Um, I saw it as a as a uh, a test for retirement. <laughs> yeah. how, how am I going to go without without them? Without that. Uh, the yeah. other thing, a friend of mine dropped over, and I said, he said, "How are you doing?" I said, I, "I think I need to do some work because if you take away all the distractions and all the folly of touring around the world uh, in this world of fantasy on stage." Who are you left with? If you take mm-hmm. all this stuff away, 
Who are you left with? And I said, I have to be honest, bitter and twisted isn't completely out of the question. I've got a little work to do. (laughs) That's a great point. It's also this this thing in my mind where when I was trying to break down, like, okay, what is an act or whatever? And I had, and you know, you got the character, that's always an aspect in there. And or like there's a person on stage, it's a pretty wide. But I kept also thinking of this thought of, we work on our character and how it's going to, like how are we being perceived in the show and how we're doing. But I was recognizing in myself that maybe I hadn't spent enough time working on the character that I am all the time, like to get a wider kind of human aspect onto it. And it's that also became kind of clear to me, like that performers might, you know, consider the time we are on stage and be really sort of thoughtful about that, or at least some of us are. Uh, and uh, and maybe we don't spend as much time on on that character. And that's the character that you are all the time. And I like I think there's a full core. Either you have to pretend to be somebody very nice and very interesting, or and then you have to be a very good actor, or you just, uh, you are, so you've got to work on yourself as well. And that was really a big thing for me as well. It seems to mirror that, what you just said. Oh, there's, I mean, there's a whole bag of stuff in there, a whole Pandora's box of, you know, the um, another dear friend of mine who's not a performer said to me once, Tom, what are you running away from? And I said, I don't know, I, I kind of feel I'm running towards something. But the longer it's gone, the many, many years since then, you know, she had a legitimate point about about that stuff. Um, you know, the, you never really know what's what, but at least on stage you know it's not real. At least there I know what is or isn't. So I think there's yeah. a whole bunch of stuff about, you know, who, how do we define, how do artists in particular define themselves? Um, <clears throat> you said the thoughtful ones, you know. Uh, I think it is also their business to inhabit their experience as a person, as a human, the whole existential stuff. So in a way, the the, the people that they naturally are, I think, tend to be <clears throat> quite deep and rich. Not that they're totally sorted out or anything like that. But I think, generally speaking, we're, we're quite aware of... of of the feelings that we have inside. I mean, as a, when you're developing a character, you have to recognise the little voices inside. And it's always the little voices that give you the biggest messages. It's not the dancing girls and the smoke and mirrors and stuff. It's the little yeah, yeah, one tapping you, keep tapping you, that are easy to ignore. Or those feelings you have and go, hang on, the last time I experienced this, I was just about to put my foot in it. So shut up. You know, yeah. the longer you go, the more you recognise those little feelings. That um, I think that the the better you know yourself. But it's 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 a challenge. It's it's a constant challenge. And I do miss the running away. I do miss being lost. I think my go-to comfort zone is being lost in a foreign country, in a foreign city, with a language I don't know, late at night alone. It's just fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's certainly something to be said for that direct sort of lostness in the real world, because that when if you're feeling lost as a as a person in your off, uh, I often define those like because you have the show and then the man and you have the show aspect, which is an intrinsic part of who I am. But there's also that human man aspect as a man, as in human. And if those two are mirroring each other, if you're sort of a bit lost as to what to do with your life, the concreteness 
of being in the world and and that mirroring of the two. I think Dante's Inferno opens with this uh, thing of Gong, which where he says uh, he awakes and he finds himself lost in the dark forest and he has to make his way out of it or whatever. And that's what he sort of does in the, um, not Dante's Inferno, the divine comedy, uh, but it's the opening kind of bit of that. In the middle of my life, I find myself lost in the dark wood or whatever. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm like in my 40s now, mid, just tipping past mid 40s. And, and I'm lost in that. And maybe that thing of being lost in the world out there in a language that you don't speak, that also mirrors in a way that existential feeling of, <laughs> of uh, yeah, when those two things, maybe they're the way that we are sort of making things up uh, in the... Um, on the, on the stage that you have to make it up as you go along in the world too. And the concreteness of having to do it in the, in the real world, that somehow calms, calms you down in the way that if you're feeling depressed or sometimes like, okay, well, we have to chop the wood, have to carry all of that in. And then after a really useful practical task, whether you don't ask any questions of why we're doing it, then you actually just find yourself more balanced. You, you know, we're talking about person and character, you know. Yeah. Um, I think there are times when one does tend to take over. Obviously, in times of personal stress, the, the, pers the person that you are takes a priority. You've got to get through stuff. Uh, but there are other times, particularly when you're on tour, where I think the character takes over. And for some reason, that triggers for me the, this, this, this concept of passion versus ambition. Um, they're very they're, – they're close cousins, um, I, I try my best to to be a passionate person. That it's passion that leads me to make the decisions I make, both on stage and off. Um, but during the pandemic, it was I felt I had to have an ambitious mindset. I had to find new types of opportunities. I couldn't just follow this unfolding path that I had been on for thirty some years. Uh, so I started becoming more ambitious. So setting goals and ignoring window shopping along the way, just going for that. Um, and that doesn't agree with me. It just doesn't agree with me at all. I, I, I find that the list of things I have to do sort of comes off the page and turns into this dark cloud or weights around my neck. And that was one of the reasons I think I had a hard time towards the end. I had to go and follow the joy again, be a much more of a passionate person. You also mentioned the forest. Was it Jeanette Winterson who wrote that um, passion isn't a path through uh, through the forest it is the forest or something through the day. Oh, yeah. Beautiful quote about about uh, how, how passion um, doesn't guide you through the forest. It, it actually takes you to it, to the deep, dark center of the forest. And so, yeah, that it's also like that, it, that it is the it, it is the forest and that it is actually all of it. I've been sort of uh, consumed by this idea lately of of the whole is always there. And anytime you, I am thinking about something or have some emotions or even like more concretely, when I express something, when I, as soon as I say something about the situation, I am somehow limiting it because it is the whole forest at the whole time. And I always, you try to look for paths and you go through the paths that you eventually you always walk that same path. And then that means that there's all these aspects, all these things that you don't see uh, or don't think. Or so whilst the your desires or your passions, they are always all of the things at the same time. And it's a fully three-dimensional thing 
or even four dimensional with with time as well and that whenever we are going through anything or make any thoughts about it it somehow limits it to just that one thing which might be true and i think this is part of this reason why there's like a plurality or multiplicity of truths about about anything when we talk about what we do now it's because people are coming at it from another point of views i'm going like this on some level i think we agree but i we're coming at it from two different points of view and both have limited and all of a sudden you, your roads might cross in that forest and then you can oh wow you're doing this whole other thing inside the same kind of passion that we have so that, I, I like that about choices you're talking a lot yeah. about choices i mean there's several things that that triggers for me one is that a choice for any one thing is a choice against millions of other options. That's the, yep. that's the first thing. So you're losing more than you're gaining by making any choice. Uh, importantly for me is also nonetheless make them make choices. Otherwise, other elements will make them for you. Yeah. Um, uh, Very good point. And, and I think that folds back on passion versus ambition. I kind of tend to look at, particularly when I'm teaching, you know, and, and looking at the choices people make on stage is um, if if you have a, an eye on getting to the end of the road, I would consider that ambition. Your goal is to get to the end of the road. The passionate person, however, may set that as a goal, but can stop and window shop along the way. Indeed, they can actually go into the shops and have a look around. Actually, if there's a back door out of that shop that is alluring, they are also totally free to take those. So passion serves you, but I think I think you serve ambition. Um, yeah, in a way. Yeah, but that's it. It's really really interesting as well. Like, yeah, I've I don't know. I've wrote it in for something, and the thing that I on my eye on the price never got me what me what I wanted. I don't quite remember where I have written this, but it is something about that, which which mirrors this thing with with passion and ambition, as well. Like I I know that there are many things that I should do, fix up my website or make make some more attempts into getting some other types of work or whatever. But I I find it so hard and strangely hard to do those kinds of things, to direct it, to, to do these direct kind of, and most of my life I've been lucky to just be in quite a bit of this kind of passionate state that you sort of talk about. And I've had enough of interest from the outside uh, when I then finally have emerged with something that I've been lucky that people uh, come with some artistic content that people have then seen that and gone, oh, that's you or I've been able to get enough work through that without doing the kind of setting myself a goal of where I want to be. But I often feel like I somehow should do that, that that's what one should do when you are a successful artist or whatever. Or <laughs> well, just generally, Frodo, I mean, this is what's pushed, hey, set goals. And I mean, you know, yeah. it, they put it in the water. They put that stuff in the water, you know, like got to set and forget everything else. Don't, you know, I think of the, I, I think of one of the definitions of clown is fully committed, but, but easily distracted, which I think is a really good edict of, of, of how to get through life. You know, yeah. yeah, I guess the more Buddhist way would be hold on tight, let go lightly. Um, yeah. But I think people just hold on tight. That's all they do, generally speaking. And we're encouraged to do that. I think it's looking, I mean, it might be a little bit conspiratorial, but it's very convenient if people are are scared and holding on damn tight. 
you know, because yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. they're not looking around. Because often you mentioned, you, referencing back to what you said, the answer is often behind you. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also that, I mean, uh, didn't uh, Angela de Castro in How to Be Stupid or whatever, she said that charisma is the pleasure of being there. And that's what, if you're always on your way somewhere else, you are, um, you, you're too busy with, with driving, you know, to use a metaphor from your work or whatever, your previous work was like, then, then it's like you're on this train and you're just trying to pull people, get them into the carriages and go as far as you can. Whilst you who have so much experience within clown, like that idea. And I, when I, that when I read that, I've not had a pleasure of, um, working or going through her workshops or anything I've just read that but it rang so true sometimes somebody steps out onto that stage and before they've even done anything they are just there in the moment and they're really seeing the audience and they are happy in this place that that charisma comes from that they come out and they're so happy that finally I'm here like I've been hungry throughout this pandemic and now I'm out there and you're there and I hope I'm radiating this emotion of how happy I am to be here. That's the double-edged sword, though, of being on stage, isn't it? I can't remember. It could be Henry Skeps or somebody said that um, mm. being a being a, a good performer is is uh, the shame of, of 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 being in the moment and the pride <laughs> of doing exactly that. You know. Yeah, yeah. That, that That's double-edged true. sword. Yeah, to me, I have that, that, it's that same thing, but to me, what then justifies it, because that's like what I feel like is an easy, or is a, is a early clowning one-on-one mistake, <laughs> is that you go out and you're only happy to be there, and you go with every opportunity, and there is nothing actually happening, because once you are on the stage, there's also this contract that the audience is kind of expecting you to do something or actually transport them somewhere. So whether that's improvised or, or whatever it is, but you do have to have, as I express it, it's like you have to have something to show, something there that will leave them better off. And that's uh, in in the expectation that people have of, of shows, it's usually that you are offering them up more than what's kind of just in the moment. That's what captures them first and they can capture the, the but then the fact that you actually have, um, either you have enough experience to sort of, to pull in a completely improvised sort of setting or you have some pre-prepared stuff, which I always think it's, you know, should always have the pre-prepared stuff. Oh, pull back on. And uh, yeah, and if the if the clown gods give you something amazing and you manage to wrap that up as the show, then do that. But a lot of the time, the idea situations are less than ideal. You need to give them something first. So to me, it's that, that sort of balance. It's like you've got to be happy to be there, but then you also have to have something to share. Um, look, Frodo, you know you're a. a you craft your work very, very well. Um, at the same time, what you do on stage is only the gift wrapping. What anyone does on stage is only the gift wrapping. It can be wonderful and beautiful and, and it should encourage trust of the audience and, and all this sort of stuff. But unless there's something in the box, um, it's just bad Hollywood, isn't it, really? Uh, That's so a wonderful, wonderful uh, metaphor or I, I love this this question this uh, this this is very interesting I'd love for you for you to unpack that a little bit this is I 
have read it, saying it, and it is so. It feels to me so deep. This this thing of and I. You've put words on something which I haven't managed to put words on myself. The fact that. I guess I always just express it as in you come on stage and then you do something, but I always want the audience to have the feeling that there's something more going on uh, underneath or I, alongside. I, I, I think that's a, at least in, in, in my style and the performers, performers and performances that I love, it's exactly that, that something is done on stage, something is presented on stage, but it is not delivered to you on a silver spoon. It is not. It is not fed to you. Um, it engages me because it's incomplete. There's a puzzle. There's a question. There's a riddle. It. 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 I. I need to find myself in that. I need to make sense of it. It's not too abstract. So it's not bad free jazz that has no melody. No, not that there isn't good free jazz. So it. It has to have some human aspect, but not give it to me all on a plate. Um, and and I th I think that the, the great performers have material that is crafted that holds its own. Um, however, there's always this depth. This this this. It's just a metaphor for something they want to deliver. What they actually the what's inside the gift is often very concealed. Uh, and I think the best performances are the ones where if there's an audience of 300, they're 300 different stories. Because, yeah, yeah. because the, the audience is more than half of the equation. What the story is lays in the audience, not in the performer. And I think particularly, you know, this is a this is a challenge because um, we like to be clear. We, we like to, to be understood. We like to make sure everyone's with us and we have to learn the confidence to let go of that, to tell our story to experience our story on stage <clears throat> and let them make sense of it, let them make their sense of it. And that does take courage. It's uh, the ego will 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 fight against against that. We'll try to telegraph what you're doing, we'll, all of that sort of stuff. It comes back, we were talking, we started this conversation talking about the character and the person. Um, I Particularly in the workshops that I do, I, I try to focus on three prime voices that, that I believe make things simple for performers to understand, and that is the voice of the person inside, the voice of the character inside, and the voice of the artist inside, where the person is interested in control, predictability, knowing where they're going, having a plan, no risk, safe, as we are in, in everyday life. Mm. Um, this goes back to primordial times and, and, you know, primitive times when, hang on, five people went down to the waterhole uh, at lunch and three came back, I might leave it a little while. It's sort of being safe, making clear choices. The character being the opposite of that, uh, chaotic, give me the risk, give me the thrill, give me the rush. Uh, in other words, safety last. Uh, however, on stage, that's no good either. You get this indulgent sort of um, uh, flow uh, that's, that's bad free jazz. And the artist's voice who is responsible for taking the wonderful human impulses that the person has and then giving them over to the character to play with for just long enough. And then ask, so this sort of moderator, 
Um, they're the three things that I think are important on stage and is trying to find a balance between those things of, of not letting the person hijack the show with their bad Hollywood directing and their, 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 their interest in being safe and concealed and hidden and not revealed. And the character's problem with just bloody never knowing when to stop and, and, and forgetting all about the audience. It's a, it's a that, that, that three-way relationship. Yeah, that's very interesting. I love that. Also, like <clears throat> when you say bad free jazz, that's my shorthand for that is uh, is the artist who makes a painting and it usually is then abstract, spontaneous kind of art. And once you're done with it and you can't quite tell what it is, then they call it Untitled 36. <laughs> that to me, it's this thing of going, well, you not only have you, it's like if you're giving the audience nothing, you're just going, I just did this or I made this. Now you deal with it. Uh, that's like uh, how I think of exactly that same kind of um, idea. I think it's uh, it's you always have to have something to show. But anyway, the this thing with dividing it up into the person and the character and the artist, this is very interesting. You have a I mean, that kind of stuff, I mean, I think that they're always going on at the same time. But when you oh, divide yeah. something up like that, you can you can kind of it's it's like a tool that you use to analyze what you do. And um, you do a lot of workshops and stuff. Maybe we should just talk a little bit about that, about like your workshops and, and your work and uh, as a clown teacher, because when I first uh, encountered you, when I came to the Australia and to the Australian Circus Festival in 2000, was the first one I did. Uh, you were teaching clown, and uh, I was sort of, and you were doing shows then with um, as Oscar and Strudel with Trent Smith, uh, Smith, yeah, with Trent Arthur Smith. Uh, and I, I was uh, blown away and everything. And then over the next little bit, you started doing the. Well, I, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you started doing the All Aboard show, the train yeah. show, which was also very cute and and so, to me, highly original, beautiful. And then now you're doing the, is it the Panopticum? No, what is it you call it? Panorama Kino Theatre. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, I, oh, I spoke over that. Say it one more time. Uh, Panorama Kino Theatre. Panorama Kino Theatre, yeah. So... Uh, so you you have you've done so much amazing work, but I thought maybe we'd just talk a little bit about because um, I love the fact that you're you're a teacher as well, and you were teaching back then, and that's now 23 years ago, and you weren't new to it then. So because uh, so, so you because you you're speaking from a kind of clown sensibility, and uh, and uh, what, what, did you do training as a clown? Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I uh, worked with Philip Gaulier in, when he was based out of London, and I also did numerous stages, including uh, the aforementioned uh, Angela de Castro, who came to Australia many, many oh, years yeah. ago. I did that together with the Rock and Roll Circus and and, and all the crew then, um, and numerous other workshops along the way. But a lot of this, it just resonated with me. And Early on in in my I guess my performing career and after doing some training with Philip and and Angela and and a whole bunch of others, um, uh, as as the years have gone by, I realised that the whole clowning you know language and the, the is not just applicable to becoming a let's call it a clown, 
but it's the fundamentals of, of a whole lot of wonderful performing. You don't have to be funny on stage to benefit from study, having studied clowning. I think it's it's a, it really bottoms you out as a human being. It really, you know, um, the, the whole idea of failure and revelation, these are crucial to being good performers because you shouldn't hide. You shouldn't be hiding on stage. You should have the courage to reveal your story, to, to tell your story, to, to show your humanity. And I think clown training is, is fantastic uh, for two things. One, resynapsing, which is actually an anatomical, physical thing that happens. We all have tendencies. Uh, we all have synapses built into us that if situation B happens, this is my go-to reaction. Some of those are great. Some of those, particularly as performers, are really bad. In other words, go the safety first. Run away from that because it will reveal something. In other words, green light is good. Red light is bad. I think as performers, we have to learn to re-synapse that stuff where red is good and green is boring. Um, and that takes a while. That takes training. And that comes back to impulses, learning to recognize impulses. They're so easy to gloss over. They're so easy to bulldoze through. If the person has an objective, they will ignore all the wonderful stuff that happens along the way. So I think learning to recognize impulses is, is super key. Um, they might seem small, but uh, any, any impulse will do. If you have a shift of impulse, something significant has happened, something of interest is going on. That's great, yeah. yeah. Being in the moment uh, and to recognize what it is that's happening. And of course, it's like sometimes I something happens on stage and I feel like you want to respond to it. And maybe I feel like, oh, this is the obvious thing to say. And you wanting to be an uh, original performer, you go, oh, I somehow don't want to say the obvious thing but then the more you give yourself into just sharing the experience with the audience when something happens off the cuff and to to point that out sometimes that's why people laugh so much if somebody knocks over a glass and you just point it out you go in taxi or whatever just some little joke everybody the whole room comes together because they we just we just shared that same kind of Share, share the same uh, moment but but um i was thinking of your uh, idea there about clown being fundamental as as a performer and and to me i couldn't agree more it is such a good a clown is also the only kind of training that happens within the circus community or so that really deals with showmanship or really deals with how to um, interact with an audience on a three-dimensional level. Because so much when you're doing Chinese pole, you're doing drills or handstands, the skill level is so high that you keep, there's more of a sort of pulse of where you're busy doing your skills and then you're looking out, if you're looking out at all. Because a lot of the time, just saw a wonderful show in uh, called Joy in Finland now of um, over Christmas. And there was a, young woman who who did an amazing um a pole act but it was almost like she had specifically crafted it for us just to sit on the outside like gibson kind of and you're watching on the inside uh, her in there and i was wondering 
and of course, you know, there is, uh, there's lots of skin because that's the nature of those kind of poles. It was like um, one of those poles, uh, not with rosin on it, but, uh, and it was like a stripper style pole that could be turned on and off from sliding. So you could do, it was amazingly technical, but I was kind of wondering, I want, once I'm sitting out here and you're not acknowledging that I'm here, all I can look at then is like, it changes the idea of what it is. And I thought, I just thought that is one more example of where people who do amazing skills or whatever, and are so focused on the skill learning, because to get to a level of Olympic level, whatever, you've got to focus so much on just the skills that you forget this kind of connection. And that's why I kind of think that sh uh, clowning or uh, when I did Circa Media with Bim Mason, he was just calling those classes performance. Yep. Uh, and well, I think of it as, 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 as showmanship. It's the, the bit, bit where the human being, the, the man takes... Um, really understands that this is a show and what the show is, what the experience is for the audience. And maybe when you just focus on your skills, all you're focusing on is what you have to show. So it, it almost gets this fourth wall. Frodo, for me, uh, particularly when you're talking about circus stuff and skill stuff versus showmanship stuff, perhaps, um, there are two aspects in the circus. One of the, what I would consider the flyers, including the handstanders, the trapeze artists, this high-level skill stuff. And to me, they, they symbolise the, our, our hopes and ambitions, ultimately speaking, uh, immortality, right? <laughs> Flying and immortality. Yeah. And then you have the clowns who symbolise the, the actuality of, of our situation here on Earth, which is we're all ignorant and stupid and don't really have a clue what's going on. <laughs> and from that point alone, we can identify with the clowns a lot more. <laughs> we hope to be able to fly. We have these wonderful ambitions to do that, but our reality is this, um, all being stupid, wonderfully so. Uh, so I, I, I think the, the clown um, has a wonderful humanity, and that's why I think to study the clown gives you the potential to have a wonderful humanity on stage as well. And the only thing that interests an audience are human things. It's I couldn't agree more. That is it's a wonderful statement. And I, yeah, I think. And what I what I think then is the same as when you talk about uh, like we have the the Hollywood movies who are all the ones with the biggest budgets who are kind of then made by a committee because everybody has to have a say because they've put money into it or whatever and you need to to do that and then you end up in more cases than not with a cliche story of going on the persona like you said of 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 safety. Everyone is going for, well, we, we should have a beautiful woman. She should look in this particular way. We should have a hero that's like that. So you end up falling into a um, predictable kind of um, story. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, I, I was making another point. I got lost along the way there of, uh, of uh, oh, yeah. But anyway, that, that if you have this found, oh, yeah. So the point being is that you might want to only be a flyer. You might want to show perfection in movement, whether it be through dance or through your uh, physical skill with the risk involved when you're doing trapeze or whatever, and you show your uh, immortality as, as a kind of uh, idea. Uh, but 
you could still do that and have this human foundation beneath because you might find other ways or deeper ways or unusual ways for that apparatus to express your immortality by having spent some time on the floor being truly human as well and explore what that is. So I, I guess that's just a long-winded way of saying that, uh, that this clowning or performance as a to acknowledge the situation of a show and where you come in and, and know this artificiality of it, that that's going to be useful throughout your career. So I often find that people come out from a circus school and the acts that they have made are difficult to make a living from. There's the, the few, the, there's few people who just have made their amazing, uh, abstract, beautiful circus act on some apparatus that needs six points of rigging and everything and it comes out and then goes straight into a show and continues to do that so much of what we do at least to make ends meet and to make it work it's like you end up doing some shows on the street or you end up doing some gigs at a shopping center or you end up doing events where you're just doing it off, off in the corner and you have to fight for your own attention so if you just have your abstract act then all you have is those five minutes of your act but if you have this performance or clown training first then you you can expand into so much more so i i think it should be fundamental in circus schools and to wrap all of this up then is that what i find in so much of contemporary circus now um like what circa and i come think in australia think what circa is doing and what um what uh, gravity and other myths, for instance, are doing. It is all the kind of, uh, uh, what do you, what is it, the immortality and the flyers, but we have sort of lost the clown in these things. There aren't so many funny things in these shows. And maybe that lived, it's just, yeah. Frodo, I, look, I think it's, it's, it, there's, there's various perspectives there. One is certainly a pedagogical one of, of a lot of the circus schools. I've, I've just been up to the Code Art Circus School to teach in Rotterdam and, you know, oh, yeah. a bunch of stuff. Um, uh, and, and, and it's, it's fairly uh, endemic to, to, to circus schools that they are predominantly, and it's a generalisation, but, you know, fairly skills-based. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not least of all, you know, a lot of circus schools around the world are, are maybe not quite so much anymore, but trying to get their students into opportunities like Cirque du Soleil and stuff. And Cirque du Soleil have a checklist, gymnastics, no clowning, no, you know, what we want is flick flacks. Okay. So it's school based stuff. We'll do the costumes and we'll turn them into personages when, when we get hold of them. Um, so I think there's a pedagogical um, aspect to it or, or a curriculum thing. Uh, I totally agree that there should be more performance skills stuff rather than just um, technical. I asked the students, my, my first question up at, uh, in Rotterdam was, uh, how, do you, how would you describe yourself very shortly? And most of them said, um, I'm a circus artist. And I replied, I walked around yesterday having a look. I see a lot of circus technicians. Where's the art? Let's dive into that, you because know, you, you've used yeah, the word artist. So where's the art? You're just showing off, aren't you? Really? I was quite provocational there. And that's how we, we entered this whole world of, of, of uh, sharing human things, fallibility, failure, all of this sort of stuff. The other aspect about um, the, the, 
the whole skills versus performance skills or technical skills versus performing and charisma and all these things. You mentioned it before, to get to Olympic standard, uh, you've got to dedicate yourself to busting your ass to, to achieve those skills. And I think along the way, the distraction uh, or the polar opposite, which is fallibility and human and the human stuff, I think it just it just gets swept away. You can't do both with the level and the standards. Okay, it's just enormous. I'm lucky. Uh, I headed off uh, at the age of 21, traveling around the world. I, I ended up at the circus base in London, wanting to be a juggler, a technical juggler. Damn right. I walked in and the Germans were there. And I two minutes later I went, well, there goes that idea. I've got no chance to compete with these guys. <laughs> One, I'm not prepared to do that many hours. I don't have the mindset for it. And it, it, there's other things that interest me other than throwing plastic objects around in the air. I thank them very, very much for, for that harsh, harsh, brutal lesson. Um, uh, that's, that's so, so I looked funny. at my options. I just looked at my <laughs> options, um, and and uh, I'm so glad for it. I'm so glad that that. Uh, oh, look, I still like to juggle on stage with the Oscar and Strudel show and stuff. But it is totally an excuse to do to to uh, deliver something else. I'm not trying yeah. to <laughs> impress anyone. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course, we're talking. It was like it's just funny because I went to Circuit Media and I was uh, there to perfect my five balls and just be this amazing juggler. And there was two Germans there who did exactly the <laughs> same thing for me. Well. <laughs> I know those guys too. And they were just uh, working on their seven clubs and I was doing five balls and I was like, okay, maybe I won't be the Olympic uh, style uh, juggler there. <laughs> uh, so, and they knocked me into what I had already, what my strength was anyway. When I then did performance classes with Ben Mason and we were doing, I realized, oh, okay, this is, <laughs> this is where I belong. I'll jump in there. Maybe this thing we're talking about, immortality and stuff like that, maybe as performers we have to ask ourselves that question, is that what we're after? And if so, we have to be very careful. In other words, am I becoming a juggler to try to achieve immortality? And that's a dangerous path to go down because as much as being a good performer is about sharing and revealing stuff, I think that's really self centered in in a way uh, we all have these you know either traumatic reasons for, for being performers or you know look at me mum or, or or whatever whatever it happens to be but i think we have to learn to understand why we and i think we continually need to revise why we uh why we do what we do why we are performers or showmen um yeah. just it's great it's, and coming back to the showman you, yeah, sorry. you said before i just got a little note here I think charisma and the skills of a showman are about embracing anything uh, that happens on stage. It's the confidence to deal with with any feelings, especially negative ones. We sing in my workshops too because it's a very naked kind of experience uh, and there's a lot to be learned from it. And uh, I, I always say to the, to the group that people like Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Otis Redding, these things, I don't think they were comfortable necessarily on stage. I think they embraced the discomfort and they used that as a, as, as a force. Um, so I think super, super important is, is, um, is accepting any feelings that you might have on stage, not being fearful 
of of embarrassment or shame or mistakes or or anything like that. I think most of us know that that that's the first hurdle to get over is stop trying to pretend and hide uh, the, the the human things that happen. Yeah, just acknowledging what's actually going on. Sometimes that's uh, so refreshing. It's probably always been the case, but maybe it is highlighted now as well, where the presentation of self through social media and uh, through we always have we are always aware of our presentation of self of course um and it probably has always been the case but it feels like my, maybe it's come to a head now as um with the situation that we're at and to just see somebody out there and you have a goal in mind of what you're going to do like okay i'm in my in a while i'm going to get on a unicycle i'm going to juggle the fire but that's not the 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 key thing here or it it is and it isn't it's like the only reason why we're here are the skills in a way but i was kept saying when i was doing this work with tom flanagan and uh, uh, um, a, a bunch of these um, acrobat boys making a new show for brett haylock who made uh, la clique and la soiree and i kept saying to them it's going because they were like oh should we do this trick or should we do that trick and i kept saying well got to remember that the skills are the filler they're just a filler that we do so that we we keep their attention or whatever but what is it that we're actually doing we're giving these manufacturing good times for these people and uh, there's something in there of um, that duality of like we do need skills that we're going to get on a bike and juggle the fire but along the way that's actually what it's about like so we all care when it finally when they finally juggle on the bike or we finally care when superman saves the world we finally care at the end of the movie when the hero gets the reward what you look in other words you're coming down of why and what does it mean you know yeah yeah a tall unicycle and what does it mean and this opens a whole bunch of stuff now we know from research not necessarily mine that um, humans are programmed to figure out uh, patterns. Uh, this goes back to, again, coming out of the cave and realizing that only three people came back from the water hole. So the pattern there is lunchtime, not good. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's why I think this modern day fascination with things like Sudoku and these puzzles and all that sort of stuff. It's also the, the convenient for us comedians of how to tell a joke. One point is a point, two points makes a line um, and with that with that line with that pattern people are able to predict what will come next of course we give them an alternate reality and an alternate logic which totally stuffs up their 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 their, their mind and they laugh to release that tension that's the fundamentals of a joke so what does it mean on stage when you present your gift or when you present the actual excuse um, that, that that you're delivering on stage, fire juggling, tall unicycle, whatever it happens to be, the audience is going to be get super busy looking for information about what where this could be going. So they're already starting to to to, to try to see, look into the future. You as a performer, you have to factor in that anything you do on stage is important information from them. Yeah, uh, you yeah. mentioned that the falling glass. All you have to do is look at it and you've acknowledged that this is something in my show. Yeah, don't ignore it. Um, 
it's up to you then the skill of the artist and the director and the, and the performers and, and everyone else to have a general sense of what that information will bring to the audience what fantasy will it wake up in the audience from my perspective and to guide them not prescribe what they should feel but sort of guide them that anything that happens on stage is actually very very important for that matrix that they're creating um i always ask the people particularly the ones i'm directing yeah but what does it mean well i spent 10 years learning how to do it yeah but it has no part in this show yeah, you've got to be brutal here. It's not in. It's just confusing the issue. Yeah. But it's, you know, Frodo, when you put something in the show, what what um, what informs you but that brutal decision of putting something in or leaving something out? Um, what, why do you put stuff in a show? And on that exciting cliffhanger, we uh, cut this episode short and you must wait uh, uh, if you're listening to this uh, as it's coming out, which I know uh, several hundred of you are doing um, immediately when it comes out, uh, then uh, um, you have to wait. And if you have come to this uh, at a later date, then uh, you will be able to just uh, go straight to the next episode. And I just like to say a couple of things about that and one of the like why am I dividing up these conversations and not just giving you guys the four hour long version of my conversations with Gareth about the ingredients of comedy and the some of the practical boring stuff is that I have a certain upload limit as to how much I can put up on the subscription plan that I have with the podcast providers who are hosting me um, which is you know it's a practical thing or whatever but the other thing is that with all the other stuff that's going on in my life and trying to be present for my family and doing shows and coming up with new stuff and excitingly at the moment I am writing I'm five episodes into writing what will be the next uh, season where I deliver monologues where I tell it as I see it I'm going to talk about play and I'm going to talk about showmanship the very origins of it um, and it's all very exciting to me it's breaking new ground in my thinking as I'm fleshing it out because writing something out is really a big part of my um, artistic process so that's all exciting um, uh, but um, uh, the other thing is that yeah so, so the point of that is to say I am um, I'm not I haven't got the capacity to do these long conversations um, with um, and upload the whole thing so I am spacing it out in part because I haven't got capacity to have that many conversations and also as you might have noticed I I, oh, I don't know if it's clear but the only people that I have spoken to here are people who are already aware of the podcast I haven't cold called anyone and said hey would you like to come on a podcast with me so the people who come here are already aware of the kind of conversation that's going on here and uh, it's I'm totally aware that it is very gender biased at the moment and uh, I am in the process of trying to rectify that but because everything has been slightly sort of I'm just responding to what has been offered to me uh, then uh, there is a bias in that kind of response too, uh, a little bit. So, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, those are some of the reasons for why the podcast is turning out how it is. I haven't, apart from, I'm 
this conversational part of it at least the other aspect of it where I'm um, writing that's kind of where a lot of my energy goes and these conversations uh, it might be a push and pull kind of where I'm going into myself and writing these uh, next seasons and uh, then I'm having conversations in the meantime and I yeah I for one am really enjoying it and from some of the response as well I get that you guys are enjoying it too but and now we've um, spoken about um, some of these things so you know if you do enjoy the podcast then uh, please tell your friends go on social media or send them a letter it'd be really awesome to hear a story about somebody who sent a letter to someone and said hey i think the thoughts that are being spoken of the world of ideas that are being visited every second week along the way of the showman is just a place for you i wrote it in a letter because i thought it was important for you to know anyway it is great to have these times with you and until next time uh, all that's left to say is uh, take care of yourself and those you love and i hope to see you along the way <laughs>